Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor and Chief Critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our Editor-at-Large. And Ann, Solo, a Star Wars story has opened. The story is actually continuing to be interesting because a lot of people weren't fans and the movie didn't do very well. So what do we make of the fact that this Star Wars film that's, you know, should be sort of, you know, a safe bet from any perspective is, is just sort of didn't, didn't work? Well, it's about a lot of things. It's a it's a question you have to ask the question, you know, did they market it? Sure. But what was the story that people were telling? The story for a long time was about a kind of tainted project where the directors, Lord and Miller, got thrown off and Ron Howard came back in. What does Ron Howard represent? Ron Howard represents safety and experience Order. and an older guy and somebody who's not very exciting, okay? Competent, yeah. but not... I will argue that there are some non-studio-ish um, movies that he did, like Rush and The Missing, that are actually really good movies, that he is ca- uh, capable when he's taken away from pleasing his studio bosses. He is capable of making good movies. I'm not saying he isn't. But in this case, what we got seemed very familiar and very safe and very, uh, un- un- you know, there was nothing unexpected about it. And it just cost so much more money north of 250 million which is probably you know it's probably more than that um that, that for them to to make money on it um at this stage is impossible yeah it, i mean it's it's not going to happen and it's just sort of like from a nuts and bolts perspective it, it what was so weird to me was like this was this was probably not the easiest selling point in the first place because if you think about it in retrospect the Han Solo kind of iconography goes back to a different era of movie making and you can't assume that Solo is a brand the way that Star Wars is a brand you have to make something that actually feels contemporary or at least has a selling point kind of on its own merits and I would say that Lord and Miller whatever their take would have been at least maybe there would have been something there that you could sell that would have felt distinctive. I mean, they've made apparently a lot of the noodling around that they were doing on the set that drove their bosses crazy was in search of something fresh. And, and I, I I mean, given how much it costs for them to shoot, you know, 80 quote unquote, 85% of the movie with Ron Howard, it, 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 honestly, looking back at that, they might as well have stuck with Lord and Miller, yeah. whatever it turned out to be, because it would have been cheaper. Yeah, just let it know? let it reach an end point, and then maybe some people won't like it, or some people will like it, and you just deal with that, and you move on. I mean, at this it point... It makes me wonder if the whole Ryan Johnson of it all with The Last Jedi didn't, um, you know, have some 
impact on Kathleen Kennedy at Lucasfilm and, and her masters at Disney in terms of being afraid of that kind of backlash. And, and what I would say to them is go for it, you know, because it's the hardcore group that's going to be super conservative and the rest of the world is going to welcome something fresh. But the other thing is, so, so at this point, three different, well, technically four directors have been fired or replaced from Star Wars movies in various stages of production, including the third of the trilogy, which, you know, J.J. Abrams is going to do now, and uh, instead of Colin Trevorrow, and whatever happened on Rogue One that seemed like it was quite a mess. And it just seems like... Gilroy had, yeah. to, had to step in. And that's yeah, just it, so... It's, it's interesting. It's frustrating yeah. because it just sends such a bad... You, it, for this little window of time, it was like this kind of cool, exciting thing where if you ran into an indie director on the rise, you could be like, so you probably took a meeting with Dinzine. Would you want to do... You know, this idea of here's this really exciting sandbox. Let's get a really cool, independently-minded talent to bring their filmmaking prowess into this. Yes, but it's box. very hard. Let me put it another way. We, I think we've talked about this before. Ryan Johnson and J.J. Abrams are both capable, A, they're writers, B, they have very strong opinions about what they like, B, C, they get the universe and they understand it, and D, they're team players who are servicing a commercial end. And for... For, and, and they're responsible filmmakers who know how to do things on time and how to delegate and how to tell people what they want. I mean, if you talk to Ryan Johnson about the specifics of the design of the creatures, on his, he knew exactly what he wanted and what he was doing and worked very well. You have to be super knowledgeable to, and, and have a vision in order to pull that off. So it, I, I would say to you that the skill set that is required to pull this stuff off is actually uh, much, much uh, more complicated than people think. But also, I feel like there's there there's sort of like this two-headed beast here between you know on one hand it's, it, there's this effort to keep Star Wars relevant, and on the other hand there's this tendency to be imitative or at least tied to the very complex roots that this thing has had going back to its its earliest versions and I, and I think that's sort of an it's an interesting challenge because I, I get well, the now, other challenge no but, but well, let me finish the yeah, point because I think ahead, I, I, I get why they might be interested in a Ryan Johnson who now got along with them uh going off and writing new characters doing this separate kind of a thing because maybe they're having a hard time figuring out what else you can do with the existing but the other the other point I want to make just really quickly on that front is I saw this behind the scenes documentary about the Last Jedi, and you could see the extent to which Ryan Johnson really got along with Kathleen Kennedy, and and was was sort of had this kind of reverence for the Star Wars universe. And I think the challenge here is like, in order to keep this thing relevant, you have to be willing to to take that risk of screwing it up, or at least screwing around with it a little bit. I mean, you look at yes, what, what George we don't Luke, know is what you is look their at, reaction wait, you, you to look the at, reaction. That's you, what I want to know. But w- Does Kathleen you, Kennedy wait. welcome the kind of thing that you're trying to 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 bring off? I, or, that I you think is a good idea, or is she afraid of it? Well, that's I, what that's I, I think know. it has not been resolved, as far as I can tell, because if you look at what you know, the, the most extreme example of somebody screwing with the Star Wars universe is George Lucas with his prequels, which are so different, and a lot of them don't work, but he's trying to do something in a very extreme way that, that is different and doesn't feel like it's, it's sort of tied to where the, the franchise came from. 
they can't go to those extremes, but there is this one element towards the end of Solo where it feels like they're, they're trying to address that element of it. And I think what, what Lucasfilms has to figure out here is to what extent can they sort of push this existing universe in new and interesting directions? I mean, Marvel's done a great job of that over the past decade. It feels like it's constantly evolving stylistically and tonally, and it's getting busier and surprising, and that's not... You know, we're just not getting that from Star Wars. Yeah, and, and Kate wrote a piece, uh, Kate Erbland, um, where she suggested that that they should really be paying attention to the stories that the fans actually want to see. And I think that's a good idea. I mean, Don, a lot of people feel that Donald Glover didn't have enough attention paid as Lando Calrissian. Um, we'd like to see more of him. Um, and and I think the the I am looking forward to the J.J. Abrams one. But the question of of how often they uh, uh, show up in theaters, um, and at what point in time they do. There was a lot of competition out there right now for for box office. The box office is going very well, actually, and even um, and 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 Solo actually contributed to the box office. It's just that it was so expensive that it's going to be considered a um, a net loss. And so, you know, was there really an audience for 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 hand, a story about Solo? Uh, maybe not. Maybe maybe we liked him because he was played by Harrison Ford. <laughs> well, he was played by Harrison Ford because he also he just sort of he emerged on screen as a fully defined character with a really cool backstory, and we didn't necessarily need. All those details to be filled in just to just for the sake of, of having. Not going to argue with you there, but there are some other movies that are out there right now. Um, oh, what I was going to say, the frequency they're they're piling them on a little too quickly. I yeah. really think. Take and, a breather, Lucas guys. Had a really good sense of keep, keeping people at bay and giving them something to to expect and anticipate and building up that if you just get a star wars movie every six months i mean what the hell you're you're gonna get tired of it well but people don't talk about those direct-to-video ewoks films that they did or, or the star wars christmas special i mean there were there were those were all to different audiences. yeah no, they were milking it for years which may be part of the problem too yeah it's just you know? more like they're they're milking it now on the same potential scale as these other Star Wars movies and they don't deserve that kind of platform. I mean, doing a Star Wars TV series, which is also being worked on now, I mean, that to me seems like maybe a better way to cash in without kind of trying to say, this is an effort that commands your attention as much as another Star Wars movie. But this is all corporate strategy stuff and less exciting to us than actually. Well, you can imagine that they're sitting around trying to figure it out as yeah. we speak. And the other the other question, of course, is if Kathleen Kennedy is leaning on uh, Lawrence Kasdan as her sort of um, knowledgeable, wise man, eminent screes, maybe yeah. he, he's conservative. Yeah. yeah. Maybe he's not as, as pushing the edges of the envelope as much as... Uh, as they could be. All right, so the, there are these other films that are out there right now on the indie side that are actually surprise hits. And um, RBG, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary, is heading past $5 million at the box office. This is unheard of. And not since I Am Not Your Negro from Rob Peck have we had a movie do that well. And that was a big Oscar contender. Also and it's released also Magnolia. By, yeah, yeah, Magnolia it's really knows. So they figured out something here. And, and I think what we're seeing is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, at least in this environment, the one that we're in right now, uh, in this toxic Roseanne Barr environment, 
um, with Donald Trump environment, uh, she be, she's emerging as something of of a great hero uh, oh, yeah. for women I mean, she, for our time. Her, and what, what's nice about her, and it, I think the movie does a good job of laying this out, is that it doesn't have to feel like it, it, it's sort of the antithesis of the Trump era as like its only reason for existing because she was kicking ass as this, you know, sort of leading leading the charge in ter- as, as sort of a feminist icon of sorts before Trump had any kind of political aspirations or anyone t- took that notion seriously. And, and, you know, her story goes back through the decades, her, the way that she worked as a, as a as a, finished law school while at, still being a mother of a young child. It's just, it's a very engrossing narrative. It's very effective and it gives you hope. So there is that, that element of, you know, people want to go to the movies to, to feel good about something. And this is, a, this is more than a documentary. It's just like a, an empowering narrative period with this, you know, a great kind of celebrity figure at, at its center. So it's Well, it's I think we're cool. going to have uh, this be one of the uh, Oscar contenders coming up. And then there's a movie coming up from Mimi Leader, who's a woman director who hasn't been given as many opportunities on the film side as I've always felt that she should have. She's worked more um, in television. But uh, we have Felicity Jones playing Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Army Hammer as her husband, her stay-at-home husband, Justin Thoreau, (laughs) Kathy Bates, and Sam Waterston. I mean, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself. So that should be uh, something to look forward to. Yeah, and it'll be neat to to kind of compare and contrast. It's sort of like with "I'm Not Your Negro," Negro sort of reintroducing James Baldwin. This is reintroducing Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Who's still on the Supreme Court? Yeah, still still working and everything. Still working out. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's the first shot of it. Barbells. (laughs) It's pretty incredible. It's pretty incredible. From cancer, she has to, you know, get strong again. I loved it. I love that. So um, the other uh, the other movie that's doing unexpectedly well, honestly, it, uh, it's 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 it hasn't been uh, in theaters as long, and it's still in limited release. But it's at the top of the of the art house uh, circuit. Is is first reformed from uh, Paul Schrader, who's had a, you know kind of a checkered career. He's 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 a great screenwriter. He although he's I didn't realize that he'd never been nominated for an Oscar, which is sort of shocking. Well, it's, it's, the shock is that he wasn't nominated for an Oscar on Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver. Because yeah. if you think about the other credits, they, I mean, American Gigolo was, was uh, successful financially for him. So I, I think, you know, it's, maybe that one could have cracked it or, or maybe Mishima. But these were, these were often not films that were going to have the easiest time with awards or even... You know, in commercial release, so weren't really mainstream films. Yeah, he's always been a little bit on the on the side. I mean, he's edgy and he's provocative, and he's not politically correct a lot of the time on Facebook, which you know is can be entertaining. Um, but this is his best film, and it's elegant. It's restrained. It's his best film in years. I think Mishima is still his best uh, film. Then. What would be? I mean, Light Sleeper is I one like of my favorites. I, I, um, I, I'm partial to Mishima. I think that film is just incredible in terms of the scope of what it's, it's doing. It's gorgeous. Been, yeah. It's beautiful. I mean, it's, 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 what's also interesting about it, and this has been spoken about a lot, is that he, he wrote this book that just got reissued decades, that he wrote decades ago about transcendental cinema, and it's putting that philosophy to use. Like, he's been watching a lot of slow cinema, very kind of meditative filmmaking, and, and sort of injected his own ideas about a crisis of faith and... and and the environment, the changing nature of, of the world, 
and 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 being feeling very alone in that whole equation into that kind of aesthetic approach. So I don't need to be credit, you know, um, to be uh, corrected though on saying that this is his best film because I actually think that what's happened is that he's taken all of his themes, all of the, his concerns, everything that he's learned about being a writer and a director over all of these decades, and put them into a perfect shape and form for for this. And 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 so the Ethan Hawke is also an extraordinary performance. Well, there's yeah. anger in this movie. There's Depression, there's fear, there's consternation, there's angst. There's, there, he's just putting all of it in there, and and in the in the vehicle of this of this tortured, uh, if you like, Brisonian priest. It is very Brisonian because it's explicitly based on Diary of a Country Priest, although it diverges in a very specific way at its ending. I guess what I would say is it's it's his most accessible film, which is not. You know, it's it's not an accessible film in the most traditional sense, but it is in in the way that it follows this one particular guy through a very a, a journey that it, it invites you into, whether or not you relate to Catholicism or, or those specific themes. And and I like that, and I like how there's it has a certain subversive element to it, but it's not necessarily going it doesn't necessarily repel somebody who can relate to those feelings of of a crisis of faith. I had an interesting conversation about it right after it premiered at Telluride because I had moderated this conversation after the screening with uh, Schrader and, and Ethan Hawke. And so there were some distributors who came up to me afterwards because there was another screening there afterwards. I was just sort of around and they, they were asking me, you know, if I thought the film had commercial appeal and I, you know, it's not my area of expertise, but I was sort of saying, I guess there there probably is an audience out there, at least on some level, that finds these themes to be relevant in their own lives. And they're like, well, we don't really know how to sell that to anyone. Well, A24 wasn't necessarily going to do a huge release for this film, and I think it probably is doing better than they could have expected, but it does it's feel It's in our like house it's... cinemas, and, and it, it... I mean, there is this one scene that I think people do talk about where this very depressed guy is expressing why he doesn't think that you can bring a child into this world, and he just portrays the the world in this vivid, 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 uh, horrifying way. Um, and and there, there are a number of scenes in this movie that stick and that make you think and that make you talk about them. Well, and that's I, the kind of word of mouth that you want. Exactly. And I was also going to say, I do think there is maybe an underserved audience that is, you know, that, that, de that, that is religious on some level or contends with, crises of, of faith because of their their upbringing and and is is a discerning audience and does not think that just because they go to church every week god's not dead five or whatever is a good movie and maybe this this film actually resonates with them and some of the writing that's already out there i think suggests that that it has and there's something really interesting about that that will be notable to keep tabs on us this film keeps as a crossover you mean with yeah the Christian i think audience. i think it actually does seem to uh, and and that it's unexpected in a way but i mean the film it's it's shocking but i but i don't think that it is you know designed to offend any given sensibility it's more of a conversation starter 
And so there's a lot to talk about there. And and, and in terms of the awards potential, I mean, what do you think? The, the fact I think that this Ethan guy... Hawke is a front runner uh, for the Best Actor Oscar right now. That means we haven't seen all the movies <laughs> that are going to be coming yeah. out in the fall. And, and already there's this word coming. You know, Cameron Bailey is tweeting that he's seeing so many great movies. And, of course, the word on the street about the, the films that are going to be booked at Venice and Telluride, it's like an embarrassment of riches coming our way so um there will be competition but for the moment he and joaquin phoenix for um uh you know the lillian ramsey movie are, are absolutely at the top of the list in terms of the movies that we've already seen it's an interesting pairing but then to go back to the, your point you made earlier there's also this thing about schrader never having been nominated for a screenplay so best original screenplay. i'd love contender. to see that happen it's a that very powerful awesome. narrative there i mean if you can yeah. keep him in the public eye and keep and remind people about that I mean, this, this is a guy who advised Spielberg on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You know, he's been around. It's, no, and no, and there's nothing more fun than sitting next to Paul Schrader at dinner, you know? <laughs> it's yeah. a really, it's always going to be a great, a great conversation. Look, I'm really happy for him that he's enjoying this kind of success that, you know, has eluded him uh, a lot over the years. And, and I, 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 I applaud him uh, for pulling this off. So going from one... Uh, longtime New York film character to another uh, for less positive reasons. We got this really powerful image last Friday of Harvey Weinstein in handcuffs. Mm. And today, as we're recording on, on a Thursday, news comes in that a grand jury has voted to indict him on charges of rape in the first and third degrees and criminal sexual act in the first degree. It just gets worse and worse for the guy. Good we want this. No one's a having a thing. problem with but, that. But, it, but it is it is quite remarkable to see it, especially in the wake of the Cosby stuff, to, to see the wheels of justice turning in a, in a way where it's, it feels less now like it's tied up in the indie film world and the way that it was before with all of these former Weinstein people or Miramax people kind of cringing at each new development. And now it's sort of like he's been single, he's sort of in a separate space now, you know, he's in the courtroom by himself, you know, no, nobody, to, nobody from the film world is going to, you know, come protect him from anything, and, uh, and maybe at this point we can sort of move on to a different chapter, and I am curious to see what happens to the assets of that company and to the film industry in sort of a, a post-Weinstein era, which we've been inching towards, but it feels like maybe we are reaching the actual post-Weinstein era now that the, the justice uh, part of the equation is, is reaching some stage of, of kind of finality here. So it'd be interesting well, to see what it happens. Well, it feels good. It just feels good. And I have to say that the, that the whole Roseanne thing feels good too. And, and I mean, some of us were surprised when Bill Cosby was actually made to, to face, you know, his, his acts and, and be charged and, and be found guilty, um, and be expelled from the Academy and so on. Well, so, so yeah. the, the, we will see what, what happens now. The Roseanne thing, um, is kind of interesting because, because it's just not the normal business practice to take a hit show and throw it off 
uh, yeah. the air. Now, but, they were between seasons, so it's not like they, they had started up again. It, but, right. But it still, it still um, uh, shows that, it, that fine. I mean, we, we, we shouldn't be looking at it as, as completely altruistic or idealistic. I, I think they saw um, all kinds of negatives coming their way from the advertising community onward. Of so, course. Uh, they, they cut their losses. But it was also, it's like, okay. But they did the right thing. You're a company in a, in a situation where you need a hit and you find a hit. It's really hard to pull away from that until your business is under duress. But they probably never should have empowered Roseanne like that in the first place. They knew she was, she was, she was wild and unpredictable in a certain way with it, that made her a liability. And to build your tent pole around somebody who is a liability is just not... Wise. I mean, they, and they will Iger figure had already else. worked with her before, so he knew exactly who entangled with her before. So he yeah. knew exactly who he was dealing with. And I think that helped them to make the decision quickly. I mean, yeah. they, they knew it wasn't going to get better. Only it, worse. So, I mean, I, I would agree that they don't, one should not completely celebrate ABC for making the right decision after making such a wrong one that it was, yeah. you know, it was, they screwed up. But, I but they it is. thought it, that they had an opportunity to bring the two sides of the world together in one place and make a conversation sort of like the one that used to occur in All in the Family, which was a very unusual thing at the time. And I remember living through it. It was, it was, it was because of Archie Bunker, you had all sides of the spectrum politically watching the same yeah. show and taking different things out of it. And it allowed a conversation to take place, but I don't think that was happening. Here. Yeah. Well, the difference also is all in the family you have, you know, Norman Lear is this auteur of the liberal show. Perspective. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's a liberal perspective and they, they said, you know, there are liberal writers in the writer's room for Roseanne, but there is still this sense that Roseanne is her name on the show that, that she sort of, is is this auteur mastermind of sorts who kind of you know looms large over over everything that you're seeing here and so that that makes it hard to kind of separate between you know it's one thing to write a show about a trump supporter it's another thing for a show to be sort of defined by it by that kind of bigotry in, in a way that feels like an endorsement and i think that's sort of the paradox you were seeing was, well, was she's there. able to she she's she's accustomed to inhabiting what they call right-wing twitter yeah. and she's used to the grossness that, that occurs there it's she's like a, a part of it thing it's yeah. it's been sanctioned by the president of the united states it's yeah. it's a it's allowed now you know yeah. forget um, that guy. people say free speech free speech well this is hate speech i'm yeah. sorry it's yeah. not acceptable. And they did the right thing. Um, you were raising a question about whether this is different from what they yeah. did on the film side. I mean, it's really, it's, it's just kind of, I, I've been thinking about it because I know, you know, we've got these interesting recent examples of, of uh, sexual misconduct affecting film productions. Obviously, the Kevin Spacey thing with all the money in the world. But, you know, something like this with, you know, sort of, the narrative around somebody taking a dark turn and you already have this thing out there, it raises an interesting question from a hypothetical standpoint, right? Like if you had a movie in theaters and somebody like a Roseanne type who's in that movie tweeted something racist, could the studio pull that movie from all its theaters? And that seems like a tricky no, one. No, but they could put it back if it was, if it was, that's what I said, it's between seasons. They didn't already make the whole season. 
they didn't already pay all that money to shoot all of the episodes. So, so you have, you have an opportunity here to pull the plug in a way that doesn't really cost them anything. Um, if a, if a movie was going to come out, you could postpone it. You could postpone it and put it back. And there are films that have been t- pushed back for various reasons. Bottom um, line here is just don't work with racists. That should just be like the first thing you say. No, any I mean, pitch they meeting. replaced Kevin Spacey on um, All the Money in the World. Uh, that was a very dramatic and expensive thing to do. Um, you know, there, there's, there's people lying low hoping for the wind uh to to die down you know we'll we'll see what happens yeah no it, it should be interesting to see how all this developed i really loved seeing that some tmz or e e paparazzi type found john goodman in new orleans at an auto shop and you know he basically just dodged them and got into his car and drove away saying very little and i, I was like i could totally feel for that dude right now you know like he just wants to get into his car and drive back to his home in new orleans and stay away from all this stuff and maybe do some cool Well, movies. there's a, a lot of people wanting them to reunite the group without, yeah. you know, Killer Off is basically the concept. Yeah. Well, kill they killed him and, off and, and then they and brought let, him back. Uh, right. He survived. <laughs> yeah. Let let the show uh, continue uh, without her. And then there are other people like our own Michael Schneider arguing with Leave It Be, you know, let it go. Yeah. I guess it's don't, sort of don't like... Don't revive it. We don't necessarily need Roseanne to make this kind of entertainment you know, the way it needs to be. It's not like we need the expanded universe to survive beyond her her kind of crazy racist moment. You know, it's like, write another good show. Take take the good stuff and, and create another good show. You don't necessarily need the characters, the supporting characters to carry that. And John Goodman's got plenty of other things he can do with his time. This so, is true. And we are reaching the end of our 200th episode. How crazy is that? Oh, it makes me feel old. Well, you know, it, the time flies by when you have a lot to argue about. I think that's kind of <laughs> the bottom line here. But I, I, I just want to say, you know, it's it's a lot of fun. We we interrupt each other a lot. We don't see eye to eye on, on, on a lot of different issues. But it, but I think that's part of what's really great is that the, the film industry is, is a place that has really interesting things going on creatively and commercially. And there there's room for many different perspectives on this and it will just keep evolving so i look forward to reaching episode 400 and you know still be pulling my hair out at, at all your different opinions while still agreeing that we both are uh, serious movie fanatics you care about i was what reading <laughs> i was reading this article about uh I, I this is true i i there was this art headline about how uh, annoying each other is a sign of a truly intimate relationship <laughs> I read it thinking about you, Eric, honestly. <laughs> and 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 as I read it, I realized, you know, that it's true. I mean, we we are very good, deep friends. And that allows us to be annoyed with each other and still be friends. It's it's just a lot of fun to bicker about stuff and then realize at the end of the day, you know, it's not personal. I mean it's personal, <laughs> but it's personal mostly in a good way. So in any All case, right. talk, talk to you, to you next soon. week. Take care. Bye bye. Bye.